Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. And first today, I would like to congratulate you, Kim, on your deal with Airbnb. Yeah, I got some fun things going on right now. So Airbnb has rolled out these things in Boston that they call experiences, which means they have listings on their website for travelers and and locals, too, that if you go onto their website and you click on this experiences button, it'll show you a whole bunch of fun things to do in and around Boston that are all hosted by locals. And I'm doing some wine tastings. So it's uh, it's pretty fun and exciting. I've already had folks from, from New York and from London and from some of the southern states, as well as some locals from in and around our area here to come in and we taste wine for an hour and a half and I have a little theme. And then it's a lot of just sort of back and forth questions. It's very not stressful, very unpretentious, you know, just kind of the stuff that I love to talk about and sort of spread my knowledge about wine and we get to taste some stuff and it's a good time. So if you're ever in downtown Boston and want to attend one of my wine tastings, check out Airbnb and sign up for one of those. And I'm sure you're talking about everything we explore here with everybody. Oh yeah, it's a lot of the same stuff. So we like to we like to keep it current and th- those questions that we get from people every week. We love to answer those things and get people to understand a little bit more about wine and then it, it's more enjoyable for them. So let's explore today's first topic from the drinkbusiness.com. How green is your wine closure? And we're talking talking about uh, screw caps and corks and all the other alternative methods to closing the wine. Kim, do you think about how green the packaging is at all when you're purchasing a wine? I think I'm starting to now. Actually, this article kind of opened my eyes to a, to a lot of different things. And it's interesting that I, I read this article and then just a couple of days later, I got a question about it. And I would say at every one of my tastings, I always get a, a, a screw cap question because people, I think people just want to be reassured that the wine wines that they're buying that have a screw cap are are not crummy, cheap wines, that the quality is there. And I don't mean just inexpensive. You know, I think people are still a little bit afraid that they're getting the equivalent of Boone's Farm in that bottle that, that has a screw cap. But there are so many different types of closures these days that you know, I really feel like as somebody who tries to be environmentally responsible, that it is something to think about. A lot of this article was explaining mostly that the screw cap closures are not as sustainable as a natural cork, which is obviously a tree. Uh, but you, like you said, my eyes were kind of open to, wow, yeah. And what surprised me a lot is a lot of the countries that say they're sustainable, say New Zealand and South Africa, use the screw cap closure. So are they not going a- away from the sustainability by using this? I think what's interesting here was that the, the definition of sustainability was a little bit different than I've usually thought about it. So a lot of what goes into having a sustainably made closure isn't just can you recycle the end product, but what are all the steps that have to take place before that closure is made? So water usage, the mining of the materials, the mining of the metal that goes into the screw cap, the fact that if you're using a cork that is not just a single piece of cork, but is little pieces of cork that are all ground up and then put back together, what's the glue that's being used? How is the facility being disinfected? 
connected. There's all these things that I had not thought of before. So that was one of the things that was really, for me, eye-opening about this article. And and really, it comes down to, like you just mentioned, cork is from a tree. And so if you have a cork that is what they call single punch, which means they have a machine that just punches out a cork from a piece of the, the bark of that tree, that is the most environmentally friendly type of closure that's out there. So less CO2 emissions creating a cork right. than creating a screw cap. Because it's simpler. There's much less that they have to do to it. It's almost like there's there are all these steps in the process that are being eliminated because you have, honestly, a really simple product when it comes to a cork. So do you think consumers think of this at all? I think some people do. And I think more and more people are starting to think about the impact of how much how much water is being used in the production of something, how much effort is going into the, the mining of, of the metals for this, and, and then thinking about, all right, how how am I going to recycle this? And that's how I've always thought of as screw caps being environmentally friendly because I figured, hey, you know, it's just, it's aluminum, it's just metal. I'm just going to throw it into the metal recycling bin and then something else will happen with that. And because I don't necessarily know what to do at the end of the day with my corks, and yes, I know that they're they're wood and they're from a tree, but I think that the idea of something being made of metal is a little bit easier for people to think, okay, now I know what to do with this and I'm doing my part by recycling it. One of the other trends I've seen a lot lately, Kim, and I don't know if you've seen this, is producers that use a cork closure, but they are not putting the foil capsule around the corks anymore mm-hmm. because they, they feel that that is a greener solution because they don't want to use that metal yeah. around the, the enclosure. And that makes sense. And and I think that that is a, it's a way to cut one more thing that can be thrown away out of the process. And there are a lot of producers that now will use wax, which is a, a very old timey thing. And now people are, are going back to that. But yeah, I, it's it has been interesting to see more and more producers that are foregoing the capsule. Have you heard any feedback about that? Because I'll tell you, when people see it on my shelf, two things they think. Number one, that it's damaged because something is missing. And then the producers still leave the airspace. So they think it's damaged, the thing fell off, the, the seal fell off, and then it's short-filled. Yeah. So I don't know why they don't give it a little less airspace than usual. Is take... there something about having the cork closure in there that they have to leave more of the headspace? I because mean, you've mentioned bit. before that the yeah. headspace between a corked bottle and a screw Cat bottle cap. is different. Yeah, I mean, it does need a little bit of space, but I mean, they're still leaving that one inch, half inch space. Mm-hmm. So I think people perceive it as a damaged product more than it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that's so. good that you can bring that perspective to it because I honestly have never gotten that question. And and I'm glad that, that you have actually, because that, you know, open is now opening my eyes to another idea that certain people are bringing into their buying process that I wouldn't have thought of before. And I haven't seen it, which I'm surprised I haven't seen this, but the bigger producers, if, can you imagine if they took just this one step and left the foil off and you make a million cases and you leave it off, all those bottles, the money, number one, they'd save and the environmental friendliness they right. would contribute. Well, right? Rosemount has always been that way. They've always just had that little like dime sized little piece of wax on the top and they've they haven't had capsules for 20 years at least so that I think is one one indication that you know it can be successful because those wines certainly have always sold very very well. You 
You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about me on my website at vinitaswineworks.com. And you can find out more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com. So Mark, you and I are obviously big into wine education. It's what we do day in and day out. And we have a real you know, passion for trying to get a little bit of knowledge into our clients and our consumers. And we found an interesting article on foodandwine.com talking about the best wine courses for people to take if they are looking to break into the wine business. And I thought this was a pretty fascinating read. Yeah, really interesting. And they worded it as the best professional wine courses. But we both know there's so many different ways to get into the wine field. But uh, we were talking about how to get into it as someone has no experience, correct? Is that what they were basically saying? Right. And this gave kind of a nice overview of the bigger, I'd say, platforms of wine learning out there. So they talked a little bit about the Master Psalm versus the Master of Wine, the WSET, which is probably the most widely known internationally of all of the wine certification courses out there. But I I actually thought that it was interesting because they, they didn't touch on one thing for me, which I have found in my own personal business is that you can know a whole lot about wine and you can have a passion for the business or you can have a passion for the subject, but there are other things that you need to know in order to be successful in the business of wine. But I think coming at it from a basis of what's your wine knowledge is a really good place to start. Yeah, I think what you were saying, Kim, is we can never understand or know everything about wine. And it's always amazing how when we take other courses, how much more we learn thinking we already knew certain things. And and I think it breaks down to a few things if you're looking at wine education. What direction do you want to go? Why do you want to do this as a service issue, as an education issue? How much time can you devote to it? Because each one of these different educational methods takes up different types of time. There's online education, there's, there's places where you have to go for multiple classes. Bottom line, though, to me, Kim, is that the more you taste, the more you will learn. So whatever you do for a course or education, tasting is key. I think that's a really good thing to point out. And it's interesting now, you and I have been in the business for for quite a while. And when we started, there was no such thing as online wine learning. And now there's a whole lot more that you can do to learn about wine where you don't even ever have to set foot in a classroom. And and I think think that that has broadened the availability of wine learning for a lot of people, but it also has the detriment of you might not be tasting with other people. And for me, a lot about wine and food comes back to conviviality, about learning together, about tasting together, about discussing nuances and opinions and all those things with other people. And that makes it a little bit harder if you're doing it all by yourself in front of your computer screen, because not only do you not have a glass of wine in front of you, but you aren't tasting side by side side with someone and then can talk about what your opinions are. Yeah, the online thing is amazing to me in the fact that when you do a course like this online, there's people from all over the world. It's not like you're going to a local and you're just getting people from the Boston area or Franklin area, but you're getting input from people all over the world. And you can also take advantage of like a one-day educational webinar, which Kim, they never had when we first started. Now, every day we're getting things about a webinar on this region or this grape. Mm -hmm. And it's a great resource for people. So let's say for someone who has never taken a wine course before and is maybe 
be interested in looking at getting into the business, what would your recommendations be for a place to start, Mark? Well, first, I would start at any local tasting, store tastings, uh, private tastings, whatever, to just taste and pick up little things about So wine. you would start with tasting just, as opposed just, to like a class class. Yeah, because maybe you think you like wine, but then you go and you try something and you don't like it and you would think, wow, this isn't really for me. I think you have to appreciate every aspect of the wine to want to learn more about the wine because then it just becomes, you'll become a geek the more you know, <laughs> but if you don't enjoy exploring it, then it's not worth going to the next level. So maybe you just want to go to a tasting and taste different things. That's right. your education. So you have to you have to know that you like it first off. My first experience with taking wine classes was, was like you said, it was a tasting class. It was a basic kind of wine 101 class for just learning a little bit more about the subject. And that was fun activity that my husband and I did. We hadn't even gotten married at that point. You know, we were like 23, 24 years old, maybe. And we were like, oh, you know, this is kind of a fun date night activity. And it was something that oh, I learned a little bit more about and then was like, wow, this is really something that I could really wrap my brain around. And then I decided to take it to the next level. But I think you're right about the the tasting part of it. You need to taste a little bit and figure out, is this something that you really like? And tasting is different from drinking, folks. We need to remember that. You know, you got to get your whole brain involved as well. Yeah. And there's different levels of, of just the tasting where you can just go into the, to a store and there's someone handing out a sample. The next level up from that is you go to a sit down event where they're actually telling you about the wine. And then you go into a class. If you, for instance, uh, want to learn how to taste better or just the basics of a grape. So you build yourself up. But I think the tasting definitely is a key thing to start with. And you probably have the same story as me, Kim. But when you took that first class, you had to have someone that had a passion for the wine to keep you interested in wanting to go the next level, right? Right. You can't underestimate, I think, the impact of a good teacher and someone who can make it not only understandable for you, but can really guide you in what you should be tasting and what you should be smelling. And for a lot of my classes, I, I tend to, I think we tend to shy away from telling people you should be smelling this and this and this and this because we want people to make up their own minds about it. But at some point, you do need that guiding hand so that you can figure out the, the right terms to, to put with the wine so that you can take it to that next level. Yeah. And it can be very, very geeky. It can be very, very time consuming. If you've seen the movie Psalm where the people are going for their masters of wine, you're talking people that are dedicating their life to wine. And there's only, what, 300 masters of wine in the world? There's not a whole lot. So yeah. that tells you that that is something that that would be your, you know, when you're looking at a college, they say, what is it, your your high level school? What, what do they say for your number one choice? Your, your outreach, one you don't think you're going to get in? That would be your top thing. You don't want to start there at the, the master's level. Um, if you just want a simple service class, that's what you go for. Just something, how do you serve it? How do you open it? Mm -hmm. And it depends what you want to do. You are seriously considering getting into the wine world and the wine business. There are different things that you can do and then therefore different paths because different classes will give you training for what you want to do. So not only are there restaurant jobs and you know restaurant management jobs and so that's a particular track. So you might want to go the sommelier route because that's going to teach you not only about wine but also about wine service. But then there are retail folks who spend their life in retail stores selling wine to people and teaching people about wine that way. There's distributor jobs. There are jobs where you could be working for an importer who's bringing in wine from, from different countries. But then there are other things kind of outside that box. There's wine writing and there's PR for wine companies 
companies. There's all sorts of other things in the wine world that one can do that require knowledge, but also kind of require those other business skills as well. So it's not just about how much do you know about wine, but how can you put that knowledge to use? You were talking earlier about, you know, we cannot know everything. And I've never really met any, I've met a lot of people who specialize in things, but, and they impress you a lot. But I think it's key when purchasing or going to a place that uh, has a wine list that there is someone behind it that knows something. Sure. You want the person who's putting together the wine list at that restaurant or that specialty store to know what they're talking about so that they are thoughtfully choosing things on the shelf. And I think that that helps with people's confidence in their buying as well. Because if you have a, a store that is well laid out and there's good stuff on the shelf in all different price points and in all different styles, then I would feel that people would have more confidence picking up something that they maybe would be less familiar with because they know that somebody smart was behind that choice. It's funny. Every, I would say not a week goes by that we're not seeing some sort of educational event and we fire them back and forth to each other. And, and it's like either our schedules won't work out or it's like, we don't, we'd love to do that, but we don't have the time now to do it. But what was your take, Kim, from once you built up the basic education. What was your goal after that as far as education? So I think the getting to the point where I would have a specialty. So I felt like I spent many years in the business just getting my broad knowledge taken care of. And then it was only after I had been able to do that for a number of years that I felt like, okay, maybe now it's time to, to specialize in something. And I really went back and forth a whole lot about after we did the French Wine Scholar program together, trying to figure out, okay, is there some sub region of French wines that I really want to specialize in. Because I get the question all the time. They're like, oh, do you have a specialty? I'm like, well, I don't really have a specialty. But but now I can say, well, yes, I do have a specialty. You know, I'm, I'm a French wine scholar. So French wines are my specialty. And sparkling wines are really where my passion is. So I know a whole lot about those as well. So it's it's been interesting to have that broad base and then to kind of take it where I want to take it, depending on what I really like and what I really enjoyed drinking. It's funny, though, how we took a wine specialist class and a lot of French wine. And then we take the French wine scholar class. And I felt when we started like, wow, it did my my world was just opened up so much more, right? Yeah. It, like, what did we not know before? Oh my this gosh, there was, so right? was so much that we learned in that course that we were like, wow, like I never actually, it was like, I, I knew it, but I didn't really understand it. And now I feel like, oh, now I understand it. It's just, there's, there's, and, so much to know. And now this is doing this show and finding content for this show. That's what we do every day is we always keeping up with things for our education. And we're bringing that to share with you. And we hope that um, you may consider this show as part of education and wine just by us talking what we're seeing and what we're tasting every day. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we're going to explore a subject that was in a magazine called Wines and Vines. It's usually a very technical wine industry news publication, but they talked about top 20 wine brands that are on the market today, Kim. And first off, I'd like to, they explain this as off-premise wine brands. There's a term in the liquor industry, off-premise and on-premise. Can you explain to our listeners that what those terms mean? 
So the terms are based on where you, the consumer, are going to be drinking the wine. So if you are going to be drinking it somewhere else, like at your house or at a party, that is considered an off-premise site. So you are buying the wine in a store and you are taking it out of the store and then you're drinking it. So wine stores are considered off-premise. If you're drinking it on the premises of where you are purchasing it, like a restaurant, then that is considered on-premise. So these were off-premise brands that topped the market. Number one one was barefoot and number one by a lot yes. was barefoot Six, was it 67 million or 667 667 million dollars worth of barefoot was bought in 2017 that's a lot of, <laughs> that's wine. A lot of wine a lot of wine and the in the top 20 i think there was five or six brands of wine that are all owned by the same corporation which is we talk about this a lot how most of the wines you see on most store shelves are owned by five or six big corporations. So on the top 20 list, it was dominated by these big corporations. And not only was it dominated by those those really big, big brands and corporations, but these top five that were on this list were all very inexpensive bottles to buy. So the number that they had here was they were all under $5 for a 750 milliliter bottle. Now, I don't know necessarily where they got that $5 because I don't think that that is regular markup on a store shelf $5 or if that was sale price $5 or if that was cost to the retailer before they put it on the shelf $5. Yeah, probably national average price. Mm-hmm. Because Typically when you're talking just... like yeah, like a like a $5 or 4.99 bottle of wine, that accounted for the vast majority of these bottles sold. So take that $667 million divided by $5. That's a lot of bottles. It's still a lot, a lot of bottles. A lot of bottles. That's even scarier than the sales amount is the bottle amount that they're, they're making. And as a retailer, I look at this number, a top 20. But as a consumer, do you think anybody looks, what's the top brands? Like I, if you saw mm, it on a, on a shelf talker that said Barefoot with a number one selling brand, because they do use that. I think some people look at that. Sure. Do I personally? No, but I, I'm not. I'm not the person that Barefoot is trying to market to. So I think that there definitely is some value in putting. We're selling the highest number of bottles nationwide. I think that there are some people that look at that and get some comfort in seeing that. Hey, I'm drinking what's popular, therefore it must be okay to drink. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Do I you? Just don't, I don't think it's bad, but I just don't understand if I'm shopping and it says this is the biggest selling. I, I don't know because people want to drink what other people are drinking. Yeah, You know, it's sort of like you want to go where the popular people are, right? I guess, I guess comparing it to other products, I mean, if it said it's the best-selling TV in the world, I mean, if it was bad, you'd be hearing a right. lot about that Because in people's minds, there's an equation that, you no know, selling a lot equals quality. And that might not necessarily be the same for wine. I mean, we talk about the whole quality and price and big brands versus small brands versus handmade versus commercial all the time. But I, I think for some people, it, that makes sense to them. Like, oh, if if a lot of other people are buying it, then I should be buying it too. I guess the big take for me in this marketing resource would be that the only thing they can say about it is it's the best-selling brand or the number one brand. They're not saying anything about what's in the bottle. So you're not making a judgment call because of how much of it is being sold. Yeah, I'm just trying to understand, looking at it, why should I buy it? Just because you like it doesn't mean I'm going to like it. Just because 600 million people like it, I I don't know. Is is it a brainwashing technique? (laughs) (laughs) But that's the value that you bring to it too. You might have these brands in your store and people might ask you about 
about it. And then you can bring the different perspective of it's like, well, just because it sells a lot, let me show you this other brand that might be same price category, but might taste a whole lot better. And the top 20, uh, we talked about Gallo, but uh, Constellation, Deutsch, they all the big guys, Wine Group, which is Franzia, they were all in the top 20. There were some other producers like Kendall Jackson, Bogle, but Colorado, all the big names you've seen on every shelf, Apothic, they're in the top 20. I think an interesting takeaway for me from this article was talking about there are all these wines that are being sold in these massive quantities at this very low price of, let's say, $5 a bottle, that the demand for all the juice out there that is going into these wines for these very value-oriented wines. It's what's going to happen when there is no longer wine at this price point for these bottlers to buy. Eventually, prices are going to go up and it's this interesting disruption in the market. You know, what happens when there isn't a whole lot of $5 wine out there and the the wine prices creep up and up and up and up. It's funny you said that about, about the prices going up because one of my biggest pet peeves is with like Kendall Jackson, how much longer is it going to be priced at the price it's at? It's been years and it really stayed within a dollar or two, hmm. which I find amazing because they keep making more and they keep maintaining the price. So I don't know what's going to happen with price control, but it seems like they can control it somehow. Hmm. It- Do they? I wonder if they're taking, are they actually making money on a wine that they sell for $5 a bottle? I don't know. I would assume, like you said, they're sourcing grapes differently, so they're keeping their costs down to maintain the price. Right. And if they're selling these vast quantities, they only have to make pennies per bottle because they're producing so much of it that they're making their money that way. One segment of the market that does not seem to be impacted by all these wines at really low price points is this new change in the direct-to-consumer laws. And we've seen a lot of this in the last five to 10 years. It's really only been an issue here in Massachusetts fairly recently, but this whole idea that consumers can purchase wines from an out-of-state retailer or directly from a winery and have it shipped to their homes, and therefore they can bypass the retailer and they can bypass the wholesaler. The the segment of the wine pricing that is impacted by this is not these low-tier wines. They are somewhere in the $20, $25, $35, $40 a bottle category. So this is like a whole nother discussion about about wines and which wines are being sold. And I thought that that was a very interesting part of this article as well. So you're talking, I see a, I see a wine on the store shelf, it's $30, but I go to the winery site, it may be $25 or $20 type type. Or of. even something that maybe you were in wine country or you were at a restaurant and you had it and you can't find it at your local retailer and you really want it. You're not, that's not a an $8 bottle of wine that you are having shipped to your house. That's a $35 bottle of wine that you're having shipped to your house. So when we talk about the growth of direct-to-consumer wine sales, it is these higher-tier wines that are fueling the growth of that and not these $5-a-bottle wines that are seemingly flying off of store shelves. Yeah, I noticed that if you do go to, I mean, if you're on the internet and you do check a barefoot price, they're pretty similar all over, no matter how you would order it. Right. But like you said, the higher-level wines, a lot of times you go to the winery site and it's actually priced more or higher than if you could find it in a retail mm-hmm. shop, which I think they try to create that higher level idea in people's minds showing, it, you know, if you buy it from us, you're going to pay this price. Or if you're at the winery, you're going to pay that price as well. Right. And which, then you're also taking into consideration the shipping and wine bottles are heavy. And so their shipping costs really can't be discounted. You need to take into account that shipping is going to cost you a little bit extra money too. But a lot of those wines we're talking about shipping, they'll never be in this top 20 right. list of <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please feel free to read these articles, send us any questions you might have, and we look forward to talking to you later. Bye, bye, bye.